issue with bitterness is that's to put off, but to put on is forgiveness. But we're finding out that as we are talking through forgiveness, that there is a conundrum. There's a paradox, a little bit of confusion on what forgiveness actually means. Which is interesting because forgiveness is the most central component of Christianity. It's listed in my translation, the CSB, forgiveness is listed 144 times in 127 verses. But when we talk about it, which is indicative of the questions that we're asking after the sermons, we're finding that forgiveness has become a little bit more ideological even somewhat therapeutic than it is biblical. Now, in the biblical sense, forgiveness is always woven together with justice and reconciliation. This is important to note. There is no such thing as anyone getting away with any sin. Biblically speaking, either Jesus is punished for sin, or we are. No one gets away with any sin. So when we're talking about forgiveness, we have to always remember that justice, which is, there are many different definitions of justice, but the one that we're most familiar with as it relates to forgiveness and God is punishment, a, a, to be condemned, to fall under judgment, to be considered guilty, facing the punishment for your crime. Even in our day and age, when people seek justice, they want the, the wrongs righted. If someone commits a crime and it's obvious and they, they get away, we say what? Where's the justice? Justice has to do Biblically speaking, with God bringing about a punishment for the guilt of sin. But it also has to do, forgiveness has to do with reconciliation. See, there can be no, no forgiveness without justice, and there can be no forgiveness without reconciliation. In a biblical sense, reconciliation is to simply to reestablish proper, friendly, interpersonal relations after they have been disrupted or broken. That's the ultimate hope. It seems obvious. This is a dumb moment. We're all Christians. Yet why are so many of us confused as to the practical nature of forgiveness? Why are we told when, some, when you bring something up to someone, they say, oh, you're just being bitter. So is the recalling of a sin against you Unforgiveness. Are there to be no consequences once you've forgiven someone? Is that what the Bible teaches? A very popular story in Matthew 18. We're very familiar with this. If you're reading or had read the, if you're a member of the church and you've read the bitterness booklet, then this, this story was referenced in that booklet. This isn't our passage. We have many passages today. But I just want you to see this real quick, just to see what I mean about some of the challenges with forgiveness. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Here's what we are told. Then, then Peter approached him, being Jesus, spoiler alert, and asked, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now, Jesus, this is not an arithmetic lesson. He wasn't saying that at 491 times you're allowed to no longer forgive. His point was the number is irrelevant. It's the action, the posture that matters. 
And he said, for this reason, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king. Now remember, this is an analogy of what heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven. Can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Think like a billion dollars, just something you cannot ever pay. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. I, if I were teachers today, we'd really unpack this. He went out and found, he was looking for the dude who owed him money. So he was just forgiven a billion dollars and he's looking for a dude that owes him 500. In verse 27, then the master had compassion and so forth. Verse 28, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, please be patient with me and I will pay you back. The identical words he said. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what he was owed, what was owed. When the other servants saw what, he had, what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. Now remember, he can't pay everything. It's impossible. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Now, most of the application from this passage, including even in the booklet, and I've heard this passage taught way before this booklet existed to my knowledge. Most of the application of the passage has been, we need to remember that we have sinned against God more than others have sinned against us. And I think that's good application. I've used it plenty of times in my own life in counseling, helping people reconcile that reality. But that's not actually the point of the passage. And this is why it gets where forgiveness can be confusing. The point of the passage is in verse 33. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's the point of the passage. That you should have imitated the forgiveness that you were given. He said, as I had mercy on you. So there's a particular kind of forgiveness that he's talking about. You should have forgiven as I had mercy on you. The same way I forgave you is what you should do. You should imitate the forgiveness that you have received. And then he says, from the heart, which just means genuinely. I genuinely forgive this person. Now, again, we're not teaching this passage, but I want to make one important observation from this scene that I think speaks to a lot, if not all of us. Most people don't wrestle with the getting away with murder when we're forgiven by God. Most of us don't wrestle with the fact that we get away with murder when God forgives us of the many sins that we commit. Most people don't struggle with that. But yet, we struggle with letting others get away with murder when we forgive them. There's a problem there. I've I rarely, rarely, and being in ministry 17 years, a pastor at this church for 13 years, I have rarely sat in front of someone who said, I can't accept that God, I cannot believe that God forgives me. He's angry at that. <laughs> now, there might be some people who struggle with, you know, we've heard people talk about forgiving myself and stuff like that, but I don't, I don't hear or, or wondering that, but, but the reality is this. Most people do not, or do not express anger at God for forgiving them their sins. 
They don't feel like, man, God, you're letting me get away with murder. We sing, we celebrate and are grateful, but it's when someone sins against us, then it feels like they're getting away with murder. Now, we're not teaching this passage today. I just wanted to make an important observation from it as we move forward. You may not know this, but in the New Testament, forgiveness is rarely defined, but often described. It's rarely defined. Forgiveness is described that it exists, and it describes how it exists. So you'll hear verses like this, a popular verse in Ephesians 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ does not say what forgiveness is, but just that you do it. It exists. How? In Christ. God forgave you. Colossians 3, 12 and 13, another passage, very similar. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Tons of passages like this, but it doesn't necessarily say what forgiveness is. It just describes it. To be honest with you, we import what we think forgiveness means based on a number of different factors. It doesn't really say in the New Testament what it is. You will hear descriptions like this in Hebrews. Hebrews 9, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just that is it appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once, bears the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Very amazing, poetic, descriptive language, but it doesn't tell us what forgiveness is. It tells us that it exists and how it exists in Jesus. There's an assumption that we are to know what forgiveness is. But the New Testament doesn't describe it as clearly. It assumes those who were the original recipients know what it means. So what we're going to do this morning is begin a three-part series on forgiveness biblically. And we're going to just look at a few passages in the Old Testament that seem to describe what forgiveness is. And I want to make two points that I'm going to explain what those are at the end. But first, I want you to see what does the Old Testament, we're going to look at three really well laid out passages in the Old Testament to help us understand what is the forgiveness that is talked about in the New Testament, because if we don't know what it is, then we can't imitate it. And if we don't know what it is, we'll just do whatever we think it is and may not, may be going too far or not far enough. So let's begin one of my favorite passages, Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. This is the first time in the Bible that God uses this language. God is speaking to Moses. Quick background. God is speaking to Moses. This is shortly after the golden calf where people worshiped, wanted, wanted Aaron to make. He made an idol, a calf, so that they could worship that instead of God. God punishes people. Moses intercedes and says, please don't destroy these folks. If you do, all these nations will be like he brought them out just to destroy them. And this is the first time in the Bible, in any translation, unless it's a real, this is a real unbiblical one that just says whatever it wants. An incredible translation. This is the first time where this kind of language is used, spoken by God, to describe what it is he actually does. Beginning in verse 5 of Exodus, chapter 34, and I quote, The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, him is the Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, 
maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now here, again, it's describing that forgiveness exists and who this is. It says forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, right? So God is covering the full gamut of their understanding of what sin is. Iniquity is usually like some, it's all sin, but it's like, it's really guilt caused by sin. It's a misdeed. It's sin, but it's also guilt caused by sin. You've, you've sinned and now you're guilty of this. And God says, that's iniquity. I'm forgiving that. Rebellion is typically described as an offense of someone's property or sexual sin. It's violating someone else. It's what rebellion, it's a crime that usually is destruction of people's property or sexual sin. And then sin is just the all-encompassing that just you've defined good and evil on your own terms apart from God. You've transgressed something forbidden or ignored something that God requires. Two greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you confess to the Lord consistently that you don't love him or your neighbor as yourself? Many of us don't even do that. I'm not saying it to be self-righteous. I struggle with it too. I have to remember like, oh man, I often don't even confess that. It's almost like, God, you already know I can't do that, so let me just do The only reason we know something is different because it talks about, he says this, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So we know that, okay, those who are forgiven are not guilty, and those who are guilty to him are going to be punished. That's clear. So we know at least forgiveness then is making some people not guilty. And he's forgiving the gamut of their sins, their rebellion and their iniquity. We have that much. It's pretty standard, but it still doesn't say what forgiveness is. It just talks about the character of the forgiver and the consequences of those not forgiven. So from that, we deduce, okay, I'm not guilty when I'm forgiven by God. Okay, I got that. But is there more? Our next passage we're going to look at briefly is Psalm 103, one of the greatest psalms to me in all of them and some of the best language to help us understand forgiveness of sin. Psalm 103, beginning at verse 1, 14 verses, but the second half is what matters, but I want to read all of it for context. Beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 103, and I quote, My soul blessed the Lord. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your light from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your mouth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. So here's that Exodus language. Beginning in verse 9. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. Here is the language of forgiveness. We get a little bit more of a clue now. What does forgiveness mean? Biblically speaking, forgiveness towards us, to us. Well, verse 9, we see he will not always accuse us or be angry forever. 
Now, context, these psalms are written at different times for specific people. They're experiencing different circumstances. Some of them are under the wrath of God. So as they're writing this, they understand that we're under exile for our sin as a nation, but God's not going to continually be angry at us forever. He is going to redeem. So God has sent prophets. When you read the prophets, major or minor, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, you read these prophets, they all come in different ways. There's, there's God punishes the northern kingdom by letting Assyria come and take them into captivity and make them slaves because of their sins, and he, public, he punishes the southern kingdom. So you got, you know, the southern kingdom is like Babylon and Daniel, the book of Daniel. That's the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah has been taken, so God punishes all of them. But he says he has some prophets that are there in the midst of it saying, listen, God's going to bring us out. He's not going to be angry forever. He has some prophets before the punishment comes says, listen, punishment's coming because of sin. And then he has some prophets that are there after they get out and say, listen, God has brought us out. Let's go back to worshiping him. Those are the three different kinds of prophets. You got to know which one you, where, where that prophet is so you can understand the book better. But he says this about it, forgiveness. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. Now, listen, when we think of accused, a lot of us tend to think of falsely accused. That's not what he's talking about. God never falsely accuses. Satan does. Well, actually, I don't even think Satan falsely accuses. I think he accuses accurately. It's just he accuses the brethren and God says they're forgiven. So Satan doesn't lie on you. He's just, he's just wrong about God's punishment towards you. So when it says he will not always accuse, that means he will not accurately tell you you've sinned against me or be angry forever. Well, why would he be angry? What does he do with his anger? He punishes disobedience. So here's sort of the, 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 the turning point of forgiveness. He will not always accuse or be angry forever. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. Okay, so forgiveness to us means there is an actual punishment, something we deserve for our sin against God, and he does not do that. He makes a choice. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. Now, this passage is saying dealt with. They understand it. We deserve way more than what's happening. It says he does not dealt with us as our sins deserve. It's a punishment that is earned and you're treated a certain way as a result of that punishment. And he says he's not doing that. Then it says, or repaid us according to our iniquities. Now, it seems like it's the same thing. Well, he doesn't treat us as our sin deserve or repay us, but repay is something different. Repay is about vengeance. So God isn't punishing us or taking vengeance against us. Repay, repay is about vengeance. Look at, look at Romans 12, 19. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, Leave room for God's wrath. I love the language. Like, don't do it. Leave room for God's wrath. Yeah, right. Like, like, like we're not stopping. Like, we're stopping God, right? Leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. So when we don't get repaid for our iniquities, then he's saying God is not going to take vengeance on us. And then a very important verse, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is figurative language that is basically saying that he's made a permanent distance because the east and the west can never meet. They're on two opposite sides. So God is make, has made a permanent distance from our sin and the punishment of it. Figurative language. So we see that he won't be angry and accuse us. He has not treated us, punished us as our sins deserve, and has not taken vengeance and has actually separated the punishment from the sins that we commit as far as he can. East and West will never meet. In other words, I will never punish those whom fear me, who love the Lord.
One more passage, Jeremiah 31. Again, we're not teaching these. We're just running through this. Here's Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. This is, this is the passage that is used also in, in, in the book of Hebrews. It talks about, this is the new covenant. This is what, you know, many of us believe that God is making this statement about that concerns the church as well as the Jews. And this is what the new covenant in Jesus is like. And here's what it says. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of, of Judah, This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will anyone have to teach his neighbor Or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. So here introduces one of the great conundrums of forgiveness. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. So is forgiveness a functional loss of memory? Because this is what a lot of us struggle with. Many of you have told me in the last few weeks that people have said to you, well, you're not forgiving me because you brought it up. The fact that you remember it proves you haven't forgiven. And then there's confusion about that. And I, think, I don't think people are just manipulating when they say that. I think people genuinely think, if you remember what I did to you, then you haven't forgiven me. God says he remembers our sins no more. Is that what he means? That is not what God means. It is figurative language to say something else. For just, just on a side note, if God can forget, there might be a problem. Because then he can forget that he forgot to forgive your sin. And you don't want to stand in front of a God that can forget and be like, wait. Oh, now you're getting punished. No, no, no. I thought you said. Oh, you know, my bad. I forgot. I forgot. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're good. Like that would be terrible. That would be a tough day. Like, God, you play too much, man. You had me scared for real. I thought. It's, it's figurative language. Let me prove this. I want to prove this looking at three different passages briefly. Hosea 8, 13. It's figurative language. It's connected. Not remembering is connected to something else. Here's what it says in Hosea 8, 13. Though they offer sacrificial gifts and eat the flesh, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their guilt and punish their sins. Same book, Hosea 9.9 says this, they, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. The connection in God remembering is punishing. Not that you did something wrong, but that he's going to punish you for it. One more verse to prove the point that forgiveness of sin is not necessarily God forgetting God doesn't forget anything. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which, was, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. 
Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death gave up, and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name who was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So here is a scene where humanity is judged and everything that they've done is right there. God doesn't forget anything. Everything is right here. And what you have done will be called into account. Figurative language. I mean, God, I mean, Jesus is the word, so it could be an actual book. It would make sense if God had a real vicious library since Jesus is the word of God. I don't know what I would read in that library, but it would be figurative language to say that God remembers everything and everyone's going to be held to account. But if your name's written in the book of life, you're not going to get thrown into the lake of fire. It's not that God doesn't remember what you did. It's just you're in this book instead of this book. But what you did is here. It's just this book is, is probably read with the blood of Jesus and this book is not. Forgiveness, biblically speaking, is not a loss of memory. Let's go back to Ephesians 4.32. And be kind and compassionate. Let me say this real quick. There's a ton of verses. I could, I mean, you could, we could do 50-part series on faith and forgiveness. We're just going to do three. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. Colossians again, 3, 12, and 13. Therefore, as God's chosen holy ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Forgiveness from God is to not treat you as your sins deserve. It does not mean I don't remember what you did to deserve being punished. If we're going to imitate God's forgiveness, then we don't treat people as their sins deserve, but it doesn't mean we're supposed to forget what happened. That's not what it means. It means that we, figuratively speaking, choose not to sin back against people, take vengeance against people because they've sinned against us. But it does not mean that I have to forget that it even happened. If it does mean that, then someone has to show me from the scriptures that that's what it means. Not from your interpretation, but from the Bible. I'm only using Bible passages. And I could have used a ton, but we already do sermons too long in this joint. <laughs> Forgiveness is not a loss of memory. But we're, so we're called to forgive what people and not take vengeance, to not punish, not take vengeance. But remember, forgiveness is an absence of, is an absence of justice. So if someone were to, God forbid, hurt or kill one of my children, I can forgive you, but forgiveness is not absent of justice. I hope you get life, but I just hope you get eternal life in that life. Forgiveness does not mean I don't want you to experience any consequences for your sins. It just means I'm not going to be the one to be responsible for those consequences. It's not a loss of memory. And forgiveness is not a loss of consequences. Let me prove this point. The first point I wanted to prove is that forgiveness does not mean a loss of memory. It does mean I don't treat people the way I don't take vengeance. I don't respond sinfully towards people because I'm trying to be like Jesus, the forgiveness that I've received, I want to emulate. I want to imitate. But that forgiveness does not mean you forget what happened. 
That's not what it means. It does mean I'm not going to hold it against you. But I do remember. Forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences just because you've been forgiven. This is another conundrum. Many of the questions that are asked are, if I'm going to forgive someone, does it mean I have to? In the best case scenario, forgiveness will lead to reconciliation or restoration of relationship. But that's not always what happens. And there are consequences for when we sin against each other, God doesn't always remove those consequences, nor does he remove them when we sin against him. First case in point. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Should be on the screen. And if it's not, that's my bad. Little backdrop. David, king of Israel, has sex with another woman named Bathsheba. And here's the fallout. After Nathan the prophet confronts David and tells him, you're the dude that did this wicked thing. Here's the end of that conversation, beginning in verse 9, 2 Samuel 12. And I quote, Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the, the Hethite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah, the Hethite, to be your own wife. Now, if I were preaching this passage, I would tell y'all about a crazy reality that, that David's sin was used by God to set in motion Jesus having to die on the cross because the sword will never depart from his house, which means there will be destruction and violence in your family, and that leads to Jesus Christ who experienced violence on the cross. So God even used the sin of David for a redemptive purpose. So sometimes when we sin or we're sinned against, God intends to use that for a redemptive purpose. But I'm not preaching that passage this morning. This is what he says in verse 11. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on you from your own family. Now here are the, con this is the consequences. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then David replied, then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Now that's figurative language. He can't take away his sin. He's saying, the Lord will forgive you for your sin. You're not going to be punished as you deserve. You deserve to die. You're not going to die. Verse 14, however, because you have treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. So here's David, a man after God's own heart, sins grievously. God says, I forgive you, but there are consequences for your actions. There are consequences. Forgiveness is not the removal of consequences. Now, they're the removal of the ultimate consequence from God, which is eternal punishment. But they're not a removal of some of the temporary consequences because God uses them. Case in point, Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning in verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Now listen to the language. I'm going to repeat that again. My son, is quoting from, Psalms, from Proverbs 3. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. So here's what he says. Don't take his discipline lightly like God's not playing with you. There's a purpose in your 
consequences. Don't take it lightly like it's nothing, but also don't grow weary and give up. Don't think it's not that serious, but don't think I no longer am going to stay with the Lord because he's punishing me. There are consequences for my sins. Then he says this in verse 7. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are Ill illegitimate children and not sons. So in other words, if God doesn't discipline us and they're not consequences for our sins, then it's basically God doesn't care what happens to us because the purpose of consequences are to get us to stop yes. sinning. Not because I'm angry at you. Not because you piss me off, but because you need to stop doing this. See, this, is, this is becomes the, the challenge when we're bitter at one another is we often want people to know how they made us angry. And it's not for redemptive purposes. It's to get this off of my chest. Let me tell you how you made me mad. And so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not challenging you because you need to be redeemed and to, to, to get right. It's more you've offended me. I'm going to tell you about it. But God is saying, no, 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 listen. There are consequences, but God is treating us as sons and by default daughters. If you're not disciplined by God, you're not illegitimate. You're illegitimate children, they're not sons. Now think about this in a second. Think about how we view non-Christians, the world. They just look like they just got everything. They the beautiful people, they got money, fame, all that stuff, and they look like they just getting it in. And we're sitting here wanting some of that and offended that we don't have the life that's easy and comfortable and all of it like they have. All my non-Christian friends just seem like they're enjoying life and me as a Christian, I'm struggling. But the thing that we often forget is that God doesn't discipline them because they don't belong to him. So their discipline's coming later. Yours comes now so that you go to him ready. All these people don't love God. So God's like, they're going to see me later. But the people that love God, hey, let me, let, me, let, me, let me talk to you now. There's a reason why this is happening. Because I don't want you to keep going. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care. When my kids were little, I would threaten them, don't run across that street. And it wasn't because I was a mean dad, but I wanted them to know, like, this is serious. I love them. I don't want you to die, son. This warning is so that you don't die. And there's a discipline that comes with it. If you do it because of, I don't want you to do this again. That's how God sees this. He makes the point further in verse, in, in verse 9 of Hebrews 12. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Some of us did. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? Listen to what he's saying. You live the discipline that comes from God with the consequences for our sins that he's calling discipline is to help us live. And he's saying, don't take them too lightly, but don't be overwhelmed by them either. So he's reminding us, listen, this is why this is happening. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. Then he says this, and this is, the, my, this is my, one of my favorite verses as it relates to this issue because this is the, one of the truest verses in the Bible. All of them are true, but from a practical experience, this is one of the truest verses in the Bible. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, even the world would say whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. God says the consequences for your sin are to train you to produce righteousness in you. 
but we're more tempted to take it lightly or to take it too hard. God says, no, 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 no. Remember the purpose here. This discipline is because I love you. Because if I don't discipline you, that means I don't care what you do. But when I discipline you, it's because I care about what you do. Forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences. God forgives freely, but there are actions that, he, that may not change. In 1997, when I was in this, uh, this shootout with this rival gang, this was broad daylight. We were just shooting. It was crazy. My friend got shot, dropped a gun that I had used to shoot at these guys two weeks earlier. Whole thing happens. I'm, I'm facing 43 years in prison. This is 1997. Started May 19th. The next shootout was June 6th. I remember like it was yesterday. I was apprehended a few weeks later. I was facing 43 years of prison. Now I'd known about the Lord. And I remember when I got locked into a cell, I was thrown into isolation. They called it D2. I was by myself. Other inmates, I could hear them outside, but you're in a cell 23 hours a day. And I remember trying to sing some worship songs that I had learned years earlier at this church when I had first felt like I really gave my life to the Lord. And I was in this jail cell singing. And I just remember thinking, you know what, Lord? And this is before, it was just amazing. I just, I just had this sense of like, okay, Lord, I do feel forgiven for this, but you may not take away the consequences for this. And just help me be okay with that. Because I shot at these people. I don't deserve to be sitting here in this chair. I don't deserve to be a pastor, to have my wife, my children, to have anything from anyone in this room. This is where I can agree with Paul when he says, I'm the chief of sinners. I know what I deserve. I could have hit a number of people. And I sat in that cell like, all right, Lord. I didn't even know what I was talking about as much back then. But I remember thinking, all right, Lord, if you, if you allow me to, to go and stay in here, like, I, okay, just because I'm forgiven and I've asked you for forgiveness, I'm not expecting them to be like, hey, you're free to go home. I just said that and that was it. And then the judge suspended 42 point eight months of the prison time. And I sat in there like, how much did you say I'm going to do? A, a, a few weeks? What? I knew that judge did something to that judge to make him change. But it didn't mean, but I know some people who that judge did not influence that judge to change their circumstances because I did prison ministry. I was leading prison ministry and I was up at Clarksburg prison. And that was a transfer facility. Like you come to Clarksburg when you do under 18 months or you're coming there to get transferred to a major facility. And I did prison ministry and these guys would come in every week. It was every Wednesday night. And I met this one dude, big dude, about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, big guy named Rodney. And Rodney was going to court in three weeks. And he asked, could he talk to me after one of the... Um, sessions I taught. And I said, sure. They ain't have much time afterwards. You got to get back to yourself. And he began to tell me his story. And he was one of the main killers for one of the biggest drug dealers in D.C. named Rachel Edmonds. And I knew exactly who he was when he said that and everything. And he told me that he's murdered four or five people. But he was a genuine Christian now. You could see it. Like, you could see the grace in his life. You could see it in him. I could see it in his eyes. Like, he genuinely loved the Lord. And I remember he said to me, man, Kurt, I got to go to court in a couple weeks. I want you to pray for me. But he said, but you know what? If they give me life or even the death penalty, I'm good. I'm good. Because I know 
what I've done, but I know I'm forgiven. And I'm not expecting the Lord to just wipe away the consequences here, but I'm confident that when I'm up there, the consequences will be wiped away. And he became my, he was my friend until, until he was gone. I think about him from time to time. I think about a lot of people who experience the consequences of their sin. The consequences are the absence of God's love. It's the presence of it. Last verse to, to make this point, the consequences do not mean, forgiveness does not mean no consequences. Context here, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing to Corinth, the, the Christians there, and they're just sinning like crazy. And in particular, when they're gathering together for communion, the Lord's Supper, there are people that are just doing wild stuff. And so Paul says, let me explain to you why some of these consequences are happening. Beginning in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says this. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep, figurative language for have died. If, he were, if we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. See what he's saying? When we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So the consequences of our sin God sees it as discipline so that we're not like the world. We're not judged with them. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should, he should eat at home so that when you gather, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. So here Paul is saying, listen, some of you are experiencing the consequences of your disobedience because you're not checking yourself. But those consequences are not the ultimate consequence. They're there for a purpose. They're there for a purpose to help us to not be like the world and to eventually be judged with the world. This is the challenge because when we experience consequences or when we're sinned against, other people think there should be no consequences. Have you ever had somebody really sin against you and then expect it to just be over like a couple days or a week later? Like, I mean, why are we still talking about that? Huh? We might be talking about this for a few years. Why are we still talking about it? No, that... There's an effect that happens. I've sinned against, I've sinned against people, my wife or my children. It's like, oh, hold up, man. This ain't going to go away that quick. I wanted to because I'm good. I forgive and I ask for forgiveness. Let's move on. It's like, well, not so fast. <laughs> forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences. So, for us, when we are sinned against and we have to deal with, okay, the bitterness of it. Bitterness is not a godly consequence, though. Bitterness is an ungodly consequence. But the reality is forgiveness to us from God, it does not mean a loss of memory and it does not mean there are no consequences. So when we are now called to imitate, right? So let's go back to Ephesians 4 again. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another 
just as God also forgave you in Christ. Let's go to Colossians 3 again, 12 and 13. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. So I think I've made a case and I could use plenty of other verses. It's weird when you bounce around like that because you can twist scriptures to say what you want them to say. I encourage anyone to do your own study. And if I'm wrong, I will come back up here and say I was wrong. Do your own study. Don't just trust me. Do your own study. Always be a Berean. But I assure you, you are hard-pressed to come to a different conclusion than I've presented today. I've looked all over the scriptures. That's what happens when you have logos. You have software. It does the work for you. You just type it in. I'm scroll. I read all hundred-something verses so I could get the context of when forgiveness was laid out. Every derivative, forgave, forgiven, forgives, forgot, all of it, whatever. If it started with an F and had an O in it, I read it. <laughs> read every con, we read all the concepts, every verse. What's the Greek word for this word? What does that mean? I'm looking at all of it. Get logos if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about. As a matter of fact, get it from Carl right there. I read all of it. I'll read all 218 verses. I'm going to make sure if I say it and I'm wrong, I'm going to at least show you why I think that way. If we are supposed to imitate and forgive the way God forgave us, Christ forgave us, then that means we are not going to treat people as their sins are. We're not going to punish. And by punish, do sinful things to them because we don't know how to, most of our punishment, now there's different characters to punishment. Obviously, if you have a child and there needs to be some discipline for something, that happens, right? But we don't punish and take vengeance. But it doesn't mean that we don't remember and it doesn't mean there are any consequences. If someone sins against you, whether they're a believer or not, there may be consequences like, I can't be around this person anymore or for a while. There may be consequences for that. There are people in my life that I've just been like, you know what? It's a wrap. Like I just, it's not, I'm just not going to be around these people. I'm not bitter at them. I'm not angry. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not continuing to think about it. I'm not trying to tell everybody else about it. I'm just not going to be about it. And that is a consequence of sin. Consequences, particularly relational consequences, are there so that I think, so that the person understands you can't just do this stuff and everything is all right. Sometimes it's not okay. Sometimes it's not okay. And the sting of that, from God's perspective, is to help us or that person, if they're a Christian in particular, to not be judged with the world. Forgiveness does not mean the loss of memory and it does not mean there are no consequences. So then with that being said, so then what is our responsibility then? What are we supposed to do when someone sins against us? What's our responsibility then? How do we handle that situation? What is our responsibility? We'll talk about that next Sunday. Let's pray. You have to understand, 24 is one of my favorite shows, ended on the cliffhanger every episode. You have to understand that. I am, I am I'm trying the human 24. I'm trying to end on a cliffhanger. Father, we just, Father, we are trying to understand what, your, what the Bible says, using examples from your word. Lord, I pray to you before this message that, that whatever is not true, that you would, you would correct that, and whatever is true, that you'd make us see that. I'm not here to manipulate or try to remove anybody's responsibility, including myself, from what it means to forgive biblically. I want to know what it means, though. And to know what it means to forgive others, I have to understand how you've forgiven me. I also know that I can't. I'm, it is impossible for me or any of us to forgive with the perfect righteousness that you do. 
but it doesn't excuse us from the responsibility to forgive just because we're not, quote unquote, perfect. So, Lord, as we are processing this and in these next two sermons, the next week's sermon, forgiveness from us. Help us to see, Okay, you've commanded that we forgive. What are the practical responsibilities that we have in light of how you've forgiven us that we do towards other people? Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would put it on the hearts of everyone to read for themselves, study for themselves. They don't have to trust me. Read for themselves. See for themselves. What exactly does it mean when you say you forgive? And then if we're to forgive like you, what are our practical responsibilities? What do we have to do for real? Not just what people want us to do, but what do we have to do based on your word? Lord, I pray that you'd give me the the word to communicate that for next Sunday. For your glory and our good. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.